You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith. Good afternoon, Chris. Good afternoon. Oh, it's lovely to talk about science, you see. We're talking about elections this afternoon and all the rest of it. I could ask you, is it, is it possible to, to predict who's going to win in certain areas? But I won't, because that's just an impossible, impossible No, you, you, you need to nip over the border to Zimbabwe mm. under its former leader to answer that question. Or perhaps to <laughs> Russia, where Vladimir Putin does an excellent job of having fair elections. And there are many other countries as well, but no, I don't know. And I try and steer clear of politics, because, of course... Um, Science is all about facts, yeah. and you can you can you know argue about that. Whereas politics is very much a personal thing, and it will come down to what people want. Yep, absolutely right. Do you have a question for Chris, our naked scientist, this afternoon? O double one eight eight three o seven o two. Perhaps you have something that has been bugging you for a very long time, and you'd like Chris to answer it. Well, that's why he's the naked scientist, because he knows all the answers. You see, so do give us a call. You can also SMS on three one seven o two, or leave a WhatsApp voice note message on o seven two seven o two one seven o two. Right, first question. I've got an SMS here. Chris says Gareth wants to know is warp speed possible warp speed mr spock (laughs) (laughs) it is possible in the movies but not the way that they show it Uh, what do we mean by warp and why does it get called warp well the idea is that because there is a speed limit in the universe and that's the speed of light 186,000 miles a second or 300,000 kilometers a second very very fast because there is that limit beyond which we cannot go any faster When you have something as big as the universe, where we're talking light years to get to the other side of the Milky Way, our galaxy, our galaxy alone, has got something like 100,000 light years across it. So you would be traveling at the speed of light for 100,000 years just within our galaxy. Hmm. And then there are the billions of galaxies out there that you might want to visit. How could you do that in a way that actually doesn't cost you multiple lifetimes. In fact, multiple multiples of lifetimes in order to get there. Well, that's where the concept of warping space comes from. The idea is that you would take one bit of space and bend space rather like you could fold a piece of paper and you could move it from one place to be closer to the other place. And in that process, you'd shorten the journey. So if you imagine I had a piece of A4 and I wanted to go from one side of the A4 to the other, I could bend the two ends round to meet each other And then instead of having to go all the way around the piece of paper, I've got a short journey. Problem is, to bend space-time in that way, whilst it is theoretically possible, would take more energy than there is in the average star. And so we'd have to come up with a way of producing and wielding enormous amounts of power to warp space in that way. And so therefore, while it's theoretically possible, and we know that space does warp, And the evidence that space warps is that when you look at things in the distance and there are big objects nearby like black holes and stars, they are massive enough to bend the fabric of space. So you end up with light appearing to to move or things appearing in different places from where they should be. So we know it's possible, but theoretically, not practically. So I would say watch this space, ba-boom, but don't. Don't hold your breath because it's going to take a long time. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Andile in Fredadorp. Hi, Andile. Hi, hi. How's it, uh, Ray and Chris? Um, uh, thanks for taking my call. Mm, go for it. Yeah, so Chris, uh, I'm like over 20 years old now, and I've never been able to tell them how is it, but how is it 
that we still don't fall off the globe. You know that the globe is kind of slanted at a degree, and everything is kind of, you know, because it's so, it's so wide and so huge, everything seems straight from eye level. But how, how do I not fall off? <laughs> and why doesn't the world seem upside down, seeing that we're in South Africa, yeah. right? So at night time, we're, yeah. kind of, we're kind of below the globe in a way. Please explain that. Yeah. I still can't wrap it around my head. Wow, what a lovely question, yeah. yeah. It still boggles my mind, but the, the the way you've got to think about this is that the Earth is a huge sphere. And by huge, I mean relatively speaking, because, of course, there are much bigger spheres. There's the Sun, there's Jupiter, and you could get the Earth more than a million times inside the Sun. So that's how big the Sun is. But it's so big relative to us that you don't notice the curve of the Earth. We know that the Earth is a sphere because if you go into space – or you do what we did a couple of years ago, and we sent a balloon up to the edge of space to about 33 kilometers up, and we were able to visualize the curvature of the Earth because we'd put some mobile phones with their cameras running in a box beneath this balloon so we could see it. So we know the Earth is curved, and we, we know that for a fact. But it's so smoothly curving and so slightly and gradually curving compared to the size of us that to our perspective, it looks like the Earth is flat, and then you move around a bit, and it looks like the Earth is still flat, and you move around a bit, and it looks like the Earth is still flat. But if you look over very vast distances, you can appreciate the curvature of the Earth because, for instance, if you follow a ship sailing out to sea where you have an uninterrupted view of the ocean, you will see that the ship disappears over the horizon from the bottom upwards. In other words, you can't see the bottom of the ship, just the tallest bits, because it's gone over the curve that is the horizon. And the reason that all the water doesn't flow downwards is that, well, what weighs downwards? Because whichever way you go, there's always an upwards and a downwards. And the Earth has gravity, which is acting towards its center of mass, which is pulling everything towards the middle. So it's smearing the water out into the thinnest sheet possible over the surface of the Earth, being pulled in by gravity. And the only exception to that is when you have the sun and the moon exerting a gravitational force, which causes the water to heap up a bit more in some places than other places. But that is why it looks flat to us, because we're really small compared to it. But it is actually a giant sphere. That is so interesting. And Dila, does that actually answer your question? Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, no, that's great, actually. Um, I'm so surprised <laughs> that we haven't fallen off. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And we're not dizzy. But yeah, thank you so much, Chris. Nice one, Andila and Fred Drop. Another question on that, Chris. When it comes down to the horizon, what is the distance, if you're looking into that ship out to sea and it starts to disappear, between you and the ship, what's the distance? Well, there is actually some maths that you can do, and it, it's called the 1, 2, 3 rule, but actually it's 1.24 times the square root of the height of your eyes above the ground in feet will give you the distance in miles. This is all imperial, I'm sorry, but it'll give you the distance in miles to the horizon. So 1.24 times the square root of your eyes above the ground, and that will tell you how many miles to the horizon. So if you're about, if you say you're a six-footer, 1.24 times the square root of six is the distance in miles to where you see the horizon in an uninterrupted field of view. Yeah, oh, that is so interesting. All right, okay. Let's take a WhatsApp voice note message. Hi, Paul Joburg. I would like to know from Chris, the naked scientist, um, there's so much 
so many conspiracy theories about COVID and the likes of and how it affects individuals. My question is, has there been any ability to identify why some people die from COVID and others don't? So man flu for some of us and for the other people it goes from flu to just terrible to death. Um, is there in a particular enzyme or a particular blood type or has there been any work done on that? Thanks very much. I hope I get the, question, the answers to the question. Cheers. Right, Chris, your thoughts. Well, this is probably one of the most researched subjects on the planet right now and for the last 18 months. What we learned pretty quickly as soon as COVID burst onto the scene was that this is not an equal opportunities virus. Yes, it will infect everybody, but what it does to everybody is very, very different in terms of how old they are and how ill they already were. And people who are older universally tend to come off worse than people who are younger. People who already have underlying health diseases and health problems like diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, heart disease, kidney problems, immunocompromised people, anyone who fits into that category is automatically at much higher risk. So having one of those diseases makes it as though you are older. Now, we don't know exactly why this happens, but what we do know is it's almost certainly to do with the immune system and it's almost certainly to do with how well your immune system wrestles the virus to the ground in the very early stages of the infection. What we've re realized is that people whose immune system very quickly gains control of the virus and neutralizes it do not go on to get those very severe repercussions. And when people get COVID, which is the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that we've been studying, what appears to happen is that if the immune system does not stop the virus quickly, the virus grows more and winds up the immune system more, but not enough to get rid of the virus. It actually makes the immune system call in more of an inflammatory response. Right. And you then go into this for what can, what, what, uh, there's no better phrase than an inflammatory tailspin where the immune system winds itself up to the extent that it's actually doing more damage to your body than the virus is. Okay. That damage isn't confined just to the lungs. It actually, because the immune system is designed to protect your entire body, the inflammatory reaction can affect and does affect almost any part of your body. But obviously, the most pronounced damage is often initially in the lungs. And because that robs you of the ability to oxygenate blood, this then compounds the damage being done to other organs because they're deprived of oxygen and oxygen sensitive tissues like the kidney, like the heart, like the nervous system are then further compromised. Mm. So for that reason, we think that it's because of a failure of the immune response to control the disease properly. Therefore, helping people to mount a more powerful immune response through the use of vaccines, in some cases through the transfusion of therapeutic antibodies, as well as certain drugs that can damp down some parts of the immune system to stop the damage happening is the way that we can stop people actually becoming severely unwell with coronavirus. Okay, okay. So a lot of people think it's not a coronavirus vaccine. It just stops serious illness. Am I right? Yes. When we, when we first embarked on the journey to make these vaccines, people had obviously hoped that we would make vaccines that will prevent infection and therefore prevent severe disease. But during the trials of those vaccines, not on humans, but on animals, it became apparent that animals who were being protected from severe disease 
but they were nevertheless still catching the infection under certain circumstances. And what we realize is that the reason this happens is that the more antibody you make, the better protected you are. And there are almost two thresholds, a high threshold of antibody, which prevents the infection at all. And that's because it prevents the infection occurring on the mucosa, the lining of your nose and throat. Mm. So it stops the virus getting in. But you need very high levels of antibodies for that site to be protected. But then there's a lower threshold where if you are more immune than that threshold, it stops you getting severe disease in your lungs. Okay. But not enough of an immune response to stop you catching the infection. So what we're tending to regard this as now is a vaccine that prevents severe illness but does not and cannot prevent disease and therefore cannot prevent transmission. So people are coming around to the idea that this is an endemic infection which we cannot stamp out or eradicate with the present generation of vaccines that we have. But what we can do is to convert it for, from what would be a severe illness for some people into a trivial infection for everyone. Yeah. But we live with the fact that we are at some point, vaccinated or not, all probably going to catch this infection sooner or later. Mm. But no, okay, that, that's great information. Robert in Joburg, you also want to ask about COVID particles versus air particles. Hi. Robert? Robert in Joburg? Yes, uh, Dr. Grace, may I ask you the question? It's a very important question. Are the particles of the virus that are smaller than the air? Uh, hi, Robert. The answer is that the, the, these are coronavirus particles. The coronavirus is about 100 nanometers across. So that's about one ten thousandth of a millimeter. That's the virus. And when a person's infected, the sites that are infected first are the airways, the nose, throat and lungs. And this means that there's virus growing on that tissue. And when you breathe, you will breathe out particles, including particles of virus. But most of what comes out of your body won't be virus particles like that naked, it will actually be droplets of moisture which have been blown off of the airway linings as your breath goes down your nose and out of your mouth. And those droplets will have originated from the places where the virus is growing. And so you'll be dispensing into the air moisture droplets, which are much bigger than virus particles, but they will contain hundreds and in some cases possibly thousands of virus particles. And the those moisture droplets, just as virus particles will bob around on the air, they're very tiny, so they remain airborne, suspended in the air for a period of time. And if you are indoors and sharing air for a long period of time with another person, you can breathe them in. And if you breathe them in and you breathe in enough of them, then you tip the balance in favour of you getting infected. That's an infectious dose. But that's why being outside and in a well-ventilated space is lower risk than being indoors in a poorly ventilated space alongside someone who's infectious. Okay. Right, got time for one or two more questions. Mohammed in Mayfair. Hi. Uh, hi, hi, Ray. Hi, Dr. Chris. I'd like to know about motor car oil. What, uh, has it got a shelf life or does it deteriorate? And what is quinine in, uh, in, uh, in tonic water? Okay, just... just uh, I, the line wasn't great. I think you said, what is quinine in tonic water? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, quinine is 
Quinine is known as a plant alkaloid. It's a chemical that's naturally made by some plants. And historically, quinine was obtained from the bark of the Kinchona tree. And this comes from the South American continent, where individuals there first flagged up to Europeans that they had this treatment for fever, and they called it the fever tree. And you could make an infusion from the bark of this tree and it would stop fevers. Now, what we now realize are that those fevers that were being treated were malarious fevers. And malaria is strongly inhibited by, unless it's developed resistance, quinine. And so if you make quinine, you can stop malaria, but it's also a very bitter compound. Many plant alkaloids are very bitter which gives it an interesting flavor. So if you add that to your tonic water, you get that, that particularly sharp, bitter flavor, which gives the tonic water its characteristic flavor. Oh, right. I didn't know that. Okay. Very quickly, final question. Does the shifting of magnetic north contribute to climate change? That's from Jeff. Hello, Jeff. The answer is it shouldn't do. Magnetic north has been shifting around for all of the time the Earth has had a magnetic field, which means it's back at about four and a half billion years. And the magnetic field doesn't actually make a huge amount of difference to the way in which the climate behaves. Magnetic fields change over long timescales, between 100,000 and a million year timescales. Climate changes much more rapidly than that, um, obviously on long-term timescales, but on you know tens of thousands of year timescales. So there's unlikely to be much of a, of a consequence of the magnetic field changing compared to certainly the, the massive impact of forcing the climate that humans are exerting on the planet through our release of fossil fuel burning carbon mm. dioxide products. Okay, there we have it. The Naked Scientist Chris Smith. Always fascinating chatting to you. Thank you so much once again for coming You're welcome, on. Mike. Good to talk to you. You too. Cheers. That's Chris Smith and so many, so many questions coming through. Many, many, many questions. But uh, you know what? We'll do it all again next week, Monday.